So I would like to open with a scripture, and then we will dive into uh, this week's topic, which is not in the book of Acts, so it's a little bit different. But let me read this scripture from 1 Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let me pray before we uh, look into this. Father, thank you for this this beginning of the week, this Lord's Day, that um, mercifully we have had set aside that we might gather and come together and worship you. Father, I I pray for the saints that are before um, you this morning, Lord. I pray that you would unite us in the name and under the lordship of Christ for his purposes, Lord. May we lay down our own ambition and our own perceptions of what may be good or bad. And I pray that we would submit to Christ and, and his truth and his word. And so now, Lord, we do this together and we open our hearts and minds to your word and what you would say to the church. And I pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, if you are just joining us physically at this church, if this is, if you're recently here or new here or in any part of that spectrum, uh, I just want to say welcome to the party. Um, This is a, a church that we have been worshiping together now for three years, almost three years, and we are what they call, in church jargon, a church plant. Some of you probably think, what does that mean? Um, and it does not have anything to do with the affiliation of the marijuana factory in Smith Falls. A church plant means a church that is planted in an area, a new church, a new work of the gospel, for the sake of evangelizing or seeing a new group of people come to know God personally. And that's the aim of a church plant. There's, there's two ways to plant a church. And one of them is very unfavorable and, and gets a bad rap and fairly so. And that's when a church plant comes to town and says, look, we're a new church. We're better than all the other churches. We preach better. We have better music. We're more fun. Our lighting is better. Everything's better. So Christians come on over here because you're probably disgruntled with your church anyway. So why don't you come on over here? That's why most churches don't like church plants, because that's divisive. It's not helpful. Church plants in the Bible were a group of believers going to a place and saying, there are more people in this city for God to save. And so their target, their goal, their ambition, their mission is to see the lost come to Christ. That's the true identity and purpose of a church plant. And then those people grow into be the body of Christ, and then they operate as a church, and they continue to reach the lost. Uh, Church plants typically are more focused on reaching the lost because there is nobody else there on a Sunday morning. 
All right. There's a small church. You want to see your church grow. So you evangelize. So it's generally church plants are a little bit more hungry to reach the lost than your longer established churches. Now, that's not always the case. There are some fantastic old, old churches that reach the lost really effectively, really passionately, really directly. So that's a general statement, but there's a reason why that is. And so we are a church plant. As such, uh, I am an overseer of this church. And, um, which is also is a word for elder. And the purpose of one of those people is to oversee the affairs of the church and to say, where is this church going? Are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? Are we on the right track or are we going down a rabbit trail and, and being distracted? So that's what an overseer does. And so as an overseer over the last year, I've been really thinking, especially since, um, Doug left and some of you know, Doug, the one of the previous pastors at this church, I have really started to think, what, is, what, what are we going to do to transform, to become the church we ought to be? Because I think it would be rather arrogant to say after one year, well, we got it down. We're, we've figured it out. We've got all our discipleship structures down. We know how to reach the lost. We're trained. We're, we're aces, right? And so we have really sat down, and, and many of you have been helpful in conversations over the dinner table and looking at what is going to make this church the effective church plant and biblically, biblically modeled church that we ought to be. And the, the answer is that we're not there yet, and that's okay. And so part of this morning, is we're calling it Partnership Sunday, is to move forward in some of the pieces that are not yet in place, some of the commitments that have not yet been made, some of the establishment uh, structures that are just not yet in place. And so we're looking at what it means to partner together as people. Now, I've, my subtitle there is Joining Christ to Advance Liberty in Smith Falls. I believe that's the mission of God, to bring the reign of Christ everywhere on earth. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And so the mission of God is to advance liberty in its truest sense to Smith Falls. Now, Christ is going to do that, but he's also going to use his church to do that. And so we are partnering with Christ as a church, but what we're also asking is that you would partner with the church. That's what this is all about. And many of you are there, but I really want to lay out what I believe to be the biblical case for partnering and in language that might be more familiar and maybe a little more prickly for you membership. I'm avoiding that word as much as possible because I know almost none of you like that word and that's okay. That is okay. And we're going to touch on that a bit more. Um, so what I believe to be the case, and I want to touch a little bit on maybe one of what our blind spots might be as a culture, a church as a church is known should not be, and is not what you would traditionally think of your image in your mind, maybe as being a group of commoners gathering together to drink in the gifts and the service and all the wonderful things of the professionals. Often there is this invisible screen that exists sort of somewhere between the pulpit and the seats where it's like everybody on this side of the line they're the professionals they're the godly super ones and we all just want to come and bask in their wisdom now i'm i'm a little bit selling you know i'm exaggerating a little bit but often that's how churches operate it's like you just show up and make sure you get your fill of everybody else's work and then you're like okay good i got you know i'm good i i went to church that morning and I want to make sure that we kind of break away from that. I just don't want to be that church. 
I, I, you are also gifted. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Your gifts are all so important to, to the mission and to Christ. And so we need to rely on each other. And the picture, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but the picture of the church is actually a body. It's a body, like a, like a human body. Okay. That being said, to attend this church, we'll use traditional language. If, if you say, I go, I go to Evergreen Chapel, that's my church. I want you to know, to say that to somebody, what you are saying in your mind, I hope, is that I am a partner with those believers at Evergreen Chapel, with Christ, on the mission, alongside one another. Not because Evergreen Chapel is special, or better, or anything else, but that's just because what a church should be. And we are going to succeed in that to some degree, and we are going to fail in that to some degree. That's just the reality. It's not always a steady, smooth, upward climb to success or holiness or fulfilling the mission. But that's what I hope is in your mind when you say, oh, I go to Evergreen Chapel. I hope that is your vision of what it means to belong to this church, that you are a partner with Christ in the local church to advance liberty in Smith Falls. One thing I do want to point out, and this is sort of a historic note, is that through the 1970s and 80s, I think, I wasn't alive for most of those two decades, but what I've read and what I'm told is that denominational membership at that time started to, it was really heavily emphasized I kind of through post-war, you know, 50s, 60s, through the 70s and the 80s, their, part of the cultural revolution was to kind of kick off authority and to kind of detach from establishment, you know, fight the man. And that pervaded a lot of different parts of the Christian world as well. And so in the 70s and 80s, there was a kind of a backlash, a bit of a rebellion against church membership. Because it was too much seen as, oh, I'm, I'm, I belong to the establishment, or it's authoritative. And, and Jesus wasn't authoritative, and so I don't need the church to belong to Christ. And so what you would often have in, in those days was you would have really high church membership kind of before that, before that cultural shift against membership. You would have high membership rates. People were signed up in large numbers to belong to the church so much so that membership often exceeded attendance on a Sunday. Do you know what I'm saying? So a church might have 600 members on paper and they might have 250 people show up on a Sunday, like consistently. Does that sound like they had a functional membership at that church? Not so much. So kind of what happened, I think, through the 90s, and this is a little bit more where I can speak to from experience, was that we heard a lot in terms of church life as saying, hey, I don't. It's not about religion. Have you ever heard that when you talk about evangelism? Hey, it's not about religion. It's about relationship. Now, I'm not, I'm, not whole, I'm not wholesale dismissing that sentiment. But what I'm saying is that was the emphasis. I think through the 90s and 2000s, it was very much, it's not religion, it's relationship. Because people looked at the establishment church, the mainline church, and said, I don't know if I want to belong to this large institution that appears greedy. It appears interested in building, you know, their little empires. And so there was kind of a flip. Now what you find in a lot of churches, the churches that are left that still have membership, you actually have membership really low in, in most churches that have it. 
membership or like let's say you have 50 members and you have 200 people coming on a Sunday consistently. So in many ways, the church has seen a flip in how we see membership. A lot of people thought, well, as, as long as I'm a member at a church, I'm good. I don't really have to be there because I'm a member. Now it's almost the opposite where it's like, I love the church. I want to be around the church, but I don't want to become a member. That, I think, describes a lot more of you than the first scenario. So I just wanted to give us a little bit of a cultural heads up because I think for us that's a blind spot. It's a blind spot that we need to be aware of as we do ministry in 21st century here. And so there was, of course, in the, on the one hand, an overemphasis on formal religious affiliation. It was like, well, what church are you a member of? I remember when I watched the leaders debate for the provincial election with it had Doug Ford and it had Tanya Granick Allen and a couple others and Steve Pakin was doing it and he asked them all, what is your religion? Like, what's your faith? Just so everyone knows. And it was basically, they went around the table saying, well, I'm Protestant or I'm Catholic or I'm Lutheran. And it was like, what's your affiliation? That's what they wanted to know. It really didn't, in my mind, it didn't really reflect whether or not they knew Christ. It was just like, what church do you belong to? So on the one hand, there was that emphasis, which was probably unhealthy. But I think right now, in 2019, what we are suffering from, we are suffering from the effects of the knee-jerk reaction against that, where it has become... It's all about you and Jesus. It's all about your personal relationship with him. And, in, and when we talk about, the, about Christ to people, we often do as much as we can to avoid mentioning the church. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Because it, it does to me. When I want to win somebody to Christ, the, the church is almost the last thing I mention. Because when you drop that word, suddenly people are out. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not, what? You're just, you just want me to join your cult. You just want me to join your group. You just want me to give money. I knew there was going to be a bait and switch, right? So we're afraid of that word. And I think this has caused the church to suffer. Because I think we have spent the last 20 years telling people church doesn't matter. It's all about, and guess what served that really well? Podcasting, YouTube, Right? You can get almost a you can get a whole church service in high def streaming on your laptop while you sit in your bunny slippers and plaid pants when it's icy and snowy outside. You can, and you know what? There's church services that are a lot more entertaining. They're a lot more technologically advanced. They're a lot more whatever well funded than what's happening here at Evergreen Chapel. And so, why would you, you know, comb your hair and have a shower and get in the car and come out here and in this and you think it's bad when it's icy? Wait until it's 30 degrees and sunny and you're trying to squeeze out every ounce of summer. Some of you laugh, but it's true, right? I kind of need church to cool down. Well, that's what I... (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least we have that going for us. We have air conditioning. But it's true, right? How often do things just want to cloud in and crowd out our commitment to the local church? And also, a lot of us sort of believe this. Well, it's like, it's not like, I mean, God's not taking attendance. He's, right? Like, he understands. You know, I have things to do and blah, blah, blah. And you know what? God is gracious. God is gracious. Gosh, if you miss church, no one's striking you with lightning. Okay, let me just say that. But I think that the church suffers from this overemphasis on you and Jesus personally. And as long as you and Jesus are good... You're not missing anything in your life. And so I think that we've come to believe this lie 
that it's all about you and Jesus. Now, here's the thing. It is all about you and Jesus. It absolutely is all about Jesus. But that Jesus happens to tell us that he is the head of a body. Jesus is the head over a body of people. Do you know what that body is called? The church. Okay, so here's where the, I think here's where these two ideas connect. It is all about your personal relationship with Jesus. It totally, absolutely is. But Jesus is the head over his body, which is the church. And so how can you say you belong to Christ when you do not belong to the church? Because in some ways, that's who he is. That is how he manifests himself to the world. What is the church? I read it for us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So to be one with Christ is to be present in his body. To be one with Christ is to be present in his body, which is why it really matters what your church does week to week. It matters how your church deals with money. It matters how your church leads. It matters how your church views the Bible. You know why? Because it's not separate from you. Some people stay in churches that have gone totally unfaithful to Christ in the way they deal with things, and people stay there because they don't want to cause a commotion, and they say, you know what? I have a good relationship with Jesus, so I'm just going to tolerate this. Jesus is a body. His church is a body, and we are all interdependent on one another. And so it matters, and that's why you, as members of this church, I am accountable to you as a leader because we are of the same body. And so I just want to show you, just from that passage, there's two Greek words in there, and both of them you might recognize as roots for future English words. One of them is uh, genos. That top word there is genos. It looks like a Y. That's actually a gamma in Greek, which is the letter G. Genos, I think that's from which we get our word gene. So that idea of a chosen race, the genealogy, the common genes, we are a chosen race, a chosen genos. He says that we are also a holy nation. That word at the bottom there is ethnos, from which we get ethnicity, a chosen nation, a multitude who is sacred for God. Peter here is reflecting and, and using language from the Old Testament when God's people were more specifically a, a common gene, a singular nation. We know that that promise has expanded to all nations. And so here's the amazing part. We as a church now of all different backgrounds, Scottish, Indian, uh, German, whatever, from every nation are our backgrounds. And yet the Bible says and speaks to us that we are now a chosen race. And it has nothing to do with the color of your skin or the language that your grandmother spoke. Your racial identity primarily is of the family of God. It is of God's holy, separated, sacred nation. We are a nation on earth. We are a distinct and sovereign nation on earth, a multitude set apart for God. We are also called elsewhere in the New Testament ambassadors. There is distinct nationalistic language 
associated with belonging to the family of God. This is the New Testament. This is not Israel, ethnic Israel in the Old Testament. This is the here, now, the church. You are a chosen race. Now, the last thing that that should ever create is nationalism or racism. It destroys racism because it calls people of every race, one race, one nation, one ethnicity. And so I love that Peter uses that language. Now, here's the thing. He has called us. He has assembled us as a nation. He has set us apart. For what? For his purpose. It says that you were not a people. He called you out of darkness into light. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's the purpose of all of this? That we would be a people for his own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. So our identity as a nation, as a multitude of people set apart for God, is rooted in a purpose. There's a that, there's a so what, there's a for, for the purpose of proclaiming his excellencies. Which means there is a witness element to our gathering as a church, to our national identity. It's to proclaim the goodness of our king. And so our gathering is rooted first in redemption and also in a purpose. So let me tell you what that means. How does, what does that boil down to? That the notion of an isolated Christian is totally inconsistent and foreign to God's work and purpose for you. The notion of a Christian in isolation is totally foreign to and alien to God's purpose for you. Because he's, the whole language is that we would be a nation, a gathered nation. Now that obviously happens globally, but it happens in unique pockets as well. Now isolation can be practical. It can be, oh, I don't go to church. I don't need to. Or it can be more philosophical in that you go, but you remain in isolation. You remain separate. You, you don't open your life up. You don't really get into friendships with people. You sort of stay as aloof as you can. Either one of those is an isolating lifestyle that is inconsistent with your identity as a Christian. And so because as a church, we are called to make disciples, all of you and myself included are being discipled as part of this work and we are discipling others. And so because that's our job, I want to make clear that from scripture, what I see, and if I'm discipling you through teaching, it's my job to tell you that without a robust commitment to and participation with the local church, you are not living a fully Christian life. I'll say that one more time. If you are not living with a robust commitment to and participation with the local church, the local church, you're not living a fully Christian life. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm saying you're not living a fully Christian life. The reason why I say that is not because, look at me, I'm living the full Christian life. I'm perfect. Everybody follow me. That's not why I say that. Because that's the standard that I need to look to. And so when I am tempted to isolate myself, to, it's harder for me because I get paid by the church and it's my job. It's harder for me to do that, I think by God's mercy, because I am somewhat of an introvert and I, and I like to have my own time. To identify yourself as a Christian, to say, okay, I'm not there yet. 
And so what we want to do as a church is uphold the highest standard of what it means to be a Christian. And so if you are not living with a robust commitment to and participation with the local church, you need to be honest with yourself. I'm not where Christ wants me to be. You might be living a really holy life. You might be really abstaining from sin. You might be doing a great job holding your tongue and all that. But unless you are committed to and, and participating with the local church, you're not there yet. As I said, that includes me. I'm not trying to hold anything over any particular head here, but I'm saying if we as a church don't hold up the highest standards, then what's the point, right? We all want to strive for the greatest standard of faith that we can. Now, if you are not doing that, if you're sitting here thinking, oh, that's me, I'm not, I'm not there, I'm not living that Christian life that, you know, the scriptures say, we still love you. We love you, okay? We're glad you're here. We're glad you have been here. We're glad you will continue coming here. We love you. You will not be judged because you are not at some standard along the journey of faith. You are always welcome as a guest, as an observer, always. We want this church to be a place where people who desire to know Christ are welcome to be wherever they are at in their journey, okay? That's important because I know a lot of people are worried about what's this whole membership thing and it's going to create like two classes, like we're the good committed Christians and you are the uh, lazy and uncommitted Christians. No. Because the only reason we get to that point is because we forget the darkness that we've been called out of. People who start to use their faith as a credential for their reputation, look how good I am, they have missed the point of the faith. And so I hope that will not be tolerated and encouraged here at Evergreen. If I'm discipling this church, what am I telling people it is to follow Christ? And am I telling them less than what Christ said it was like to follow him? He said, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, you are not worthy to be, to be my disciple. He said to the others, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. Jesus said, if you do not hate your mother, your brother, your sister to come after me, you cannot be my disciple. The standard and the expectation for following Christ is high. It's high. But also he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so that brings me to how are we going to get there? What is our, what's our, what is the tool, what are the tools that Christ gave us in order to disciple people, to help bring them along in that journey? I would say that right now where we're at as a church is to formalize your profession of faith by becoming a member of this church. Now you might be a member at another church, that's fine, but you're here this morning, so I'm talking to you. That's where we're at as a church. I think that is what is going to build our witness and it's going to build our ability to disciple one another is to profess your faith in Christ through belonging officially and in covenant commitment to this church and to each other. Okay, so what does that mean? Uh, and this part is going to be quicker than my, that was an introduction, but don't think of it as like, we're just getting started. I'm just going to go through some scripture so here's my, here's the deal. This is what I believe. And actually it was Peter who helped me understand this because we were talking about like, well, how we want people to partner with us. 
We want people to partner with us as a church, and, and we, want, we want to serve each other. We want to grow, and we want to become robust disciples. Well, what it comes down to is that partnership is membership. They are one in the same. They are one in the same. Now, many of you have partnered. I mean, almost, nobody here is an official member. Let's just I'll be clear about that. We don't have any members yet. We have some applications in, and that's it. So many of you are already partners in the church. And so the step to becoming a member is actually very thin. Many of you already act exactly like members. You're already doing everything that a member does. So good for you. I don't know. Good for you. Hebrews. I want to look at Hebrews um, chapter 10. Let us hold fast. So partnership is membership. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Ooh, I hope that's not us. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. So do you see how it's all about a personal relationship with Christ, but you cannot escape the one another implications of your faith. So hold fast to your confession, but also stir each other up to good works. And don't stop meeting together. Don't stop meeting together. And so this is kind of our launch point for saying, well, what is, what is church membership? Really, it's just an official commitment to that. That's all it is. It's just a, a verbal commitment to that. I, I don't know many of you who would look at that and say, oh, that's not for me. Do you want to be stirred up to good works? Do you want to stir others up to good works? Do you want to be a Christian who's not wavering without wavering? So many of us live wavering Christian lives. And you know what is going to help stabilize that? Your membership at a church. So 1 Peter. Now, if you have a Bible, I'd love if you turn these. I want, to, I want you to see them in your own pages. But if you can't flip that fast, then just write them down. 1 Peter 2.17. What is the responsibility? What are the things that make up membership at a church? 1 Peter 2.17 says... Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Listen to this. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So pay special attention to people inside the church. And do good. Serve them. Love them. Provide for them. Romans 15. Romans 15, 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us, each one of us, please his neighbor for his good and build him up. For Christ did not please himself. Do you see how we are obligated to this in the Christian faith? Uh, Romans 12. Romans 12, 13 says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's jump down to the next one. What else is our obligation? Encourage each other. Now again, this is what I'm saying. is When I look out on our church, I see this happening all over the place. It's happening in large measure. This is not like well, we need to totally rethink what it means, but the scriptures are guiding us. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. 
This is for you, just as you are doing. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Build one another up just as you are already doing. This is a great one. Guard one another. Oh, there's one. 1024, that's the one that was on our... Let's go back to here for a sec. 24, guard one another. Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. Consider how to stir one another up to, good, to love and good works. That's guarding somebody. When you're looking out for them and you're saying, hey, I can see this. I want to see this in your life more robustly. So guard one another. That's also in Hebrews chapter 12, which is another, I think, maybe even more detailed verse when it comes to that. Write these down and highlight them later this afternoon if you have time. Hebrews 12, 15 and 16 says this. See to it. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of the Lord, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that it may be, and by it become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Did you hear that? See to it that no one else fails to obtain the grace of God. So in your community, we have a responsibility to each other to see to it that no one around you, the person you're sitting beside or near or in front of this morning, see to it that they do not fail to obtain the grace of God. When you become a member of a church, you are entering a covenant to say, I will watch out for my brother and sister, and they are watching out for me. So guard one another. Uh, number four is leadership. Just a little further on in um, Hebrews the writer of Hebrews writes in chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they, here's the reason, not just because they're leaders, but here's why, because they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Meaning that good leaders are keeping watch over the souls of the people to shepherd, to counsel, to love, to give direction, to bear the failings, to celebrate the victories, to walk together on the journey. Leadership. 1 Peter 5. Peter addresses the elders directly in 1 Peter 5, and he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, here's the command, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will also re re receive an unfading crown of glory. So that's the command to elders. That's a high bar. Not domineering, setting an example willingly not for gain so a church has leadership paul also said to titus he said i have a job for you titus in the scriptures he said you need to go around to all the little towns where there are churches and make sure that there are elders in place go to all the churches and make sure that you install elders because they need leadership in the local church again this is something that is i think a little bit more resisted in our culture today, do we really need leaders? Don't we all have the Holy Spirit? Can't we just all just work together and get along? Yes, we can, and we also should have elders. It's God's design because it, it mimics the chief shepherd. So elders should be the most like Christ, which means the greatest servants, the most lowly, the most humble, 
what comes with that? Church discipline. Church discipline is part of membership. I would be unfaithful if I did not make clear to you that belonging to a church, you submit yourself to the potential for church discipline. I'll say this. Church discipline is not arbitrary. It's not, oh, you slipped, you messed up, you are getting busted in front of the whole church and kicked out. I have sat down with people where that's the model of church discipline. It's you made a mistake and so you're excommunicated. That has nothing to do with church discipline. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. So what he's saying is there is arrogant sin taking place in your church. That ought never to be the case. Matthew 18, Jesus gives another uh, himself. I mean, people often say, oh, church discipline is so unchrist. Jesus would never do that. Matthew chapter 18. Oh, I'm in John. Have you ever heard that passage where two or three are gathered there? I am in their midst. And we think that that pertains to prayer meetings. Oh, don't worry. There's only two of us, but we know Jesus is here. Yeah, Jesus is always there. But you know what he's talking about? He's talking about when you excommunicate somebody on a biblical basis from your church, the authority of Christ is with them. Listen, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't gossip when somebody offends you. Don't go gather an army against them. Don't take sides. Don't try to win people to your cause. I'm not going to preach on this, but come on, church. If a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him or her alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained them. You have won them. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. I have been on the giving and receiving end of that, where somebody has told me my fault. And by God's grace, I saw it and said, I was wrong. And you know what? That person won me and it repaired a relationship. And that, by the same token, I have seen it where I've, I've told a fault and the person said, I, I'm so sorry. This works really well in marriage too, by the way. All right? Just tell them their fault and maybe you'll win them. It'll be great. You can move on. But if he does not listen, take two or three others along with you so that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That gets a little bit intense. So if a person rejects you, both, both of you are members of the church. If it doesn't work, take two or three. If he, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, he's no longer welcome at the church. If this person refuses to repent of sin that everyone else can see, but they don't, then they don't belong in the church. They don't, we will not establish their profession of faith. You know why this is so important? Because it's easy for anybody. This is why membership is important. It's because of witness. Because anybody can come to this church on a Sunday morning, sit in any one of these comfy chairs, and live the life that they want to, doing whatever they please with their money, their taxes, their business, their relationships. And they can go around and tell anybody they want, oh, I go to Evergreen Chapel. And people can look at them and say, say what? You go to church? And then they hear the name Evergreen Chapel. And then you know what people think of that? When an immoral person, when a, a person who has no fear of God goes around saying, oh, that's the church I go to. I love it there. Guess how that makes all of us look. Guess how that makes the whole ministry of Christ look here. 
terrible. Depressed. Depressed. So you know what church discipline does? It's, it's when a church upholds the profession of faith of somebody. So if there's membership and a person's living a totally immoral, unrepentant life, we can say, you're welcome to come here, but you, you're not a member. You're not a member here. And you know what that means? It means when they go out into their town and say, oh, I go to Evergreen Chapel, and somebody calls us up and says, that's crazy. How can you endorse this person? We say, well, you know what? They're welcome among us. We love them, but they're not, they, we do not endorse their profession. They're not a member. And that protects the witness of the church. So church discipline builds a healthy, vibrant gospel witness. And isn't that why we're here? To witness to the gospel? Guess what? You can't do that without membership. You can't do that without membership. If you figure out a way to do that without membership, let me know. But you can't. There are certain things that only membership and official membership can accomplish in scriptures. People say, well, there's no membership model in the church. That's because it was outright assumed. It so permeates the life of the church that you cannot live as a faithful church unless you have church membership. So, here's the deal. I think our uneasiness with membership has a lot more to do with our experience and our perception than it does with a biblical understanding of church. I apologize. Well, I don't apologize, but if that stings a little bit, good. I think our resistance to membership has a lot more to do with our personal experience than it does our understanding of the church from the Bible. And so what I'm trying to do is disciple us to understand this is good. This is from God. And it will cause some bumps and bruises along the way, but that's okay. Okay, I'm going to wrap up. So, okay, uh, well, there's one more thing. Love is at the core of church discipline. Love is at the core. Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those whom he loves, okay? Also, I love this 2 Corinthians, because we read that passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, boot that guy out. That is so wicked what he's doing, having his father's wife. And then check this out in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Did you hear that? The person who was excommunicated came to sorrow over their sin and they came back to Christ and the church forgave them. Love is at the core of discipline, okay? So here's what I believe. Strong membership undergirds strong mission. We want to be a church on mission. That's great. It begins with strong membership. It begins with strong membership. Some of you may wonder, why don't we do much community outreach? Because we're not ready. That's why. Strong membership undergirds strong vision. And so I'd like you to pray. Oh, I meant to give you those. There are two sheets here. I want you to take them with you. I'm going to hand some out while Bob talks. And um, I want you to look those over. But pray about your partnership with us. There are three steps. There's an info document that I printed out. There's an online application, which if you can't get online, talk to me. I'll, I'll hook you up. 
And there's a covenant. So when a member becomes a member, we're going to have a public covenant. Remember, have you ever been here when we uh, dedicate a child? That's a covenant. It's a covenant between the family and the church. We're going to do the same thing for members, where we covenant one with another to uphold Hebrews, um, Hebrews chapter uh, 10 there. So pray about that. Look over the documents, and um, that's, that's where we're headed as a church. Well, Dustin asked about repentance. Well, part of the application is having your testimony in Christ affirmed. And so in the application process, we ask, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? And so that's why, you know, as a church, we want to have a common understanding of what it means to belong to Christ. And rightly so, Dustin pointed out, obviously, repentance from sin is very basic to our profession of Christ. So, yeah, we definitely affirm and uphold that. Dave's just passing out. You'll see it's an info document that kind of lays out the, like, the expectations and our understanding. And then the other, the other one would be a public covenant, and I hope they're labeled clearly as such. Who is... Good thing I have a teacher voice. Should I use it? <laughs> it might be peaking, so if you Remix. just talk quieter, it might work better. Okay. Who is our governing umbrella who ultimately decides the standard of what is biblical truth? Because my question is, um, for example... There are some tenets of the faith that, like, the majority of Christianity agrees is what is biblical truth. And then there's other more nuanced theological arguments like complementarianism versus egalitarianism. That, for example, somebody in the church might have a problem with bring through the whatever church discipline or elders, right? But that's not necessarily a tenet of faith where... Uh, it determines whether or not you're a Christian. It's still important. The church may have, for example, like I know some of us here are complementarian, but I'm thinking about people who are egalitarian and if they have an issue and they come to you, like they're not biblically incorrect necessarily, right? So how would that be decided? And for me, I guess it's really what state are we whole, are we being held to, right? Because it's all well and fair to set up, set up a game, but if the if the game is rigged or the expectations aren't clear, then what's the point? So I think that's really what I'm looking for more, like, uh, like because most of the time the church discipline I've seen or the issues I've seen aren't necessarily like huge, like. Like, there is no Trinity doctrinal things. There are nuanced things that aren't specifically, um, they're more, uh, like, subjective. And so, basically, for me, the question is, what are those standards? Who has the power to decide them? And how do we make sure people of different uh, theologies are represented and have voice right. and aren't oppressed? Right. Is this still on, Tim? first made it one of the questions was have you read and do you agree with our statement of faith and I changed that to say basically have you read it <laughs> and um, of all people I, I got that from John MacArthur who many of you may know as maybe one of the theolo most theologically stingy and narrow guys ever right not a lot of like oh I see your point it's kind of like you're wrong if you don't but anyway his church doesn't say, do you agree with? It says, like, are you willing to be taught? Because our doctrine of faith, 
I believe in and I trust that our elders will believe in and, and it's, not, it's not not up for debate, um, but I believe in it. And so when I teach, I'm going to teach according to, for the most part, not according to our statement, but biblically speaking, my teaching will reflect what has been distilled down to our statement of faith. So anybody can, can be a member who might not agree with every single nuance that I preach. But what I ask in membership is that if you disagree, that you wouldn't go grumbling to people about, I don't like that they teach that. I would like members to say, I don't see it that way, Tim, or whoever else might be preaching. Can we go for coffee? And I want to show you my case. And this will be our book. I'll just say that now. When we disagree, this will be our book. And, and I, I love sitting down and searching the scriptures with people, especially who disagree with me. Because how the words are put together, how they are structured, will guide that discussion. And if, and if I am honestly shown, or any other elder is shown from the scripture that we are erring, I will, I will compose a committee and edit the document. Um, so the doctrinal statement is not, the, is not the authoritative guiding light. The scriptures are. Our doctrinal statement is so that people kind of get a sense of what they are, when, when they look at our church and say, what, what can I expect? That's kind of it. But, it, but you, can never, you can never wholesale distill everything into a beautiful, crystal clear doctrinal statement, and you shouldn't be able to. It's, it's, more, it's more for expectations. And again, I think the expectation is, can we just deal with this in a charitable, family-like way? Um, whether it's a Trinitarian issue or... Um, egalitarianism or um, like things that you know there are debates on I'm not going to deny that there are debates but I will say sure let's let's talk about it and and disagreement is always welcome I, I just want to make that clear because I yeah it's just welcome if, if you can come and show from the scriptures that you see things differently that's great and, and you know what if we can't come to a a clear consensus, then that's kind of exciting in a way. We need to do some more work. So I invite and welcome, and I hope that members would know that they are, their voice matters. And it, as long as it's done in charity and love, it's, it's good. It's, it's good for the family of God to disagree and to work through t stuff together. Basically, we're independent as a church. We have a denomination, but they have no instructive or, or forceful effect on our... They could look at our doctrinal statement and they could boot us out if it doesn't reflect them, but they'll never try to change the church. So there's no, there's no um, great arm in the sky. That's maybe a bad analogy, but there's no, there's no unseen authorities who are tinkering with the doctrine and, and, and all my hands are tied. Because the denomination said so. Yeah. Is there somewhere you could go? Right. Well, there are. Uh, so. Point, point granted. Uh, yeah. So I have, I have mentors who are inside and outside the denomination who would, 
would be very curious to hear from people and want to hear from them if they hear that I'm being obstinate or any of the elders. And so that would be one thing because there are guys that I trust and they would probably kick me in the head if they heard that I was being a jerk. And also there are people within the denomination that you would be able to talk to. And here's the thing. If there's a disagreement that's so bad and the eldership is not responding and then the denomination kicks them out of the denomination, it sort of validates you. Not that that's what people are looking for in a disagreement, but sadly, that's the reality, right? It's like, well, how do we know where the truth lies? Well, if a church is getting booted out of an otherwise well-respected denomination, and you are one of the ones disagreeing with the elders, that church may go on, but it's, it's not necessarily carrying with it a very strong witness at that point. So it's a sinking ship, as they call it. I'm not going to speak for Tim, but there are conditions at which people also leave right? Just like all human relationships and human covenants, they have limits. One ought not endlessly to stay in an abusive marriage. One ought not endlessly to stay in abusive relationships, right? One ought to try to make them right and better. And there are as constant points that the Bible says, and then you move on, right? That, that is true. And, and you should know when you're signing up, what are some of those conditions at which you would say, Tim should know, what are the conditions at which you say, this is when I would move on? Um, you know, when you become so obstinate, when you are stopping to listen, when you're not serving anymore, but you're using, um, th- these are reasons why people should not stay. We're, we're not in heaven yet. There, there are reasons that people um, live that are right. So, you know, th- those are some of the discussions that need to happen so that people are going into the thing with clarity. And Tim has clarity, or whoever ends up to be the leaders, they have good clarity. Uh, I think Rick has a question. Sorry, Rick. And then Babs. I don't need that, really. Well, it helps. We're recording. What if some poor person at the back hear you, Rick? Come on. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, I've got it. Did, did, did I hear you say that we're not under a denomination. My wife accuses me of not listening very well, so, so maybe I wasn't listening. We are under a denomination. But I thought, but didn't you say we're not? No, we are. Independent? But, but yeah. in Baptist denominations, churches are independent. Doctrinally. So somehow, to me, that's contradictory. What, I know, what does that mean? Because Baptists believe in um, association for... Uh, they have this phrase. I'm not like that good of a Baptist. They believe in, um, they believe in like, I don't know, gospel affiliation for the common purpose of, you know, advancing the gospel. But they believe in autonomous local churches. And so there, there is an affiliation. You should read, there's a guy named Paul Carter who writes a lot now on the um, Gospel Coalition website, can't, the Canadian one. He just wrote a great article about things that need to kind of tighten and broaden within the Baptist, because he's a very, he knows Baptist stuff a lot. I would refer you to Paul Carter on that. Um, he's in a really, he's a Canadian. Um, but yeah, they don't, they believe in autonomous churches. So basically, if you just get so wacky, they, they just boot you, they say, well, you can't have our logo on your website anymore, and you're not welcome to our conferences anymore. That's kind of it, but they're, they can't shut you down. Um, I don't have funding through a denomination, so there's no, it's just kind of like, okay, you know, goodbye. Are, are you accountable? 
any way but the church in any way to the evangelical Baptist group is there any accountability there is there is in practice I don't there's not formally but there is in practice because because of well so far because I'm the only elder here um, it's what I practice so I have um, two guys I was texting yesterday who are coaching me right now asking for prayer they know all about what's happening this weekend I'll follow up with them um, we, we go through doctrine we go through practice I ask advice I mean I have accountability with with the denomination specifically, but also with um, specific mentors. And maybe one of the helpful things that I should do is just kind of publish the main people. Because these are like, there are some fairly prominent people that are my mentors that you could find in a heartbeat. And I think maybe that would be a good, maybe that might be a good thing for you guys just to know who I'm most closely connected with, within the denomination and without, from outside. But I, I tend to have a lot of, I tend to have a lot of people that I talk to because it's just, I need it. So um, I can make that available for sure. Um, there's Ian Hales in Durham. There's Joe Boot in Toronto. Um, there's Norm Miller in London. There's uh, Mike Thiessen up near Barrie. Um, there's Daryl Dash in downtown Toronto. Um, so the guys that I regularly speak with about ministry and about the church. And so some are denominational, but some are not. And again, there's not, there's not actual teeth. We'll say that. Okay. They could not remove me. You would have to do that. Okay. My wife just told me that our, one, of our, one of our daughters <laughs> dated Paul Carter. Really? <laughs> for, for, for what that's worth. <laughs> I, I didn't know. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. <laughs> so would there be anything, Tim, that would prevent us from, as a church... Forming some sort of uh, special bond with a couple of churches that would be close by just for the purposes of a little bit of... Uh-huh. So like, we have... Here, here's a scenario, you know, uh, there's a group of elders, it's beyond you, like it's bigger than you, and there is some sort of trouble whereby the interaction between the elders and, and some people in the congregation is not good. Could you voluntarily have a few other churches that you say, okay, can you help keep tabs on us? Can you, can you yeah. help us sort through this issue? Yes. Um, so one church, you know how we've had a relationship with Celebration? We're, we have a new relationship forming with a Baptist church in Canada who is going to be like that. Um, they will be our, it's very, same, same, same situation where they will be our elders for the time being. Um, we are looking at a candidate process for creating local eldership here, but in the meantime, they will be our elders and they will be accessible to you. It's called Brookside church in Canada. Now it's not official yet. I'm meeting with their board this week. There are some pieces to fall into place there, but, um, they'll be managing our finances until we're independent. And so they will be that immediate accountability. And, um, they're a good solid church that I trust. And so there's that. And then we could even form, um, a small network because that that would be a, I think a useful part of um, just us going forward. So yeah, we could talk more about that for sure. Yeah, I guess uh, you've answered a bunch of questions, but accountability, conflict, um, how, how we deal with those things, how how 
we as a congregation hold elders accountable and how elders hold each other accountable. Um, and then just how, how we choose elders, how we, how we choose our leadership, what's our criteria for that. Um, and Cast then, lots. It might, it might yeah. be good. Um, <laughs> so I'll get to that, Dustin. Um, so choosing elders is important. The Bible says do not quickly lay hands on somebody. Um, that's a particular warning they give to church planters because especially like, you know, thankfully I'm 30 now, but um, I have felt very young in this work. And all I want to do is lay hands on people and be like, you're in charge. You know, you help. I need help. I need elders. And God has shown, a, has vindicated that scripture many times over in this church already. And um, so one of my missions is to adopt, meaning to at, to look at and adopt a, a candidate process so that we can say, put on our website and say, hey, just so you know, this is how we choose elders. And there's going to be a very detailed outline of how does a, okay, so first step is somebody says, I'd like to be an elder. That's a great first step, but it's not the last step. Um, and then it would go through, right? There would be standards, there would be activities, there would be um, examination times, there would be opportunity for feedback about that person's life because, you know, what if a person wants to be an elder and it's like, you know, we, uh, whatever, we ask for feedback and somebody says, well, actually, yeah, I fixed their car two years ago and they never paid the full bill. Like, give people a chance that, you know, a leader should be above reproach. That's what scripture calls as the standard. So that I, I haven't figured that out yet, but the process will be totally transparent. You will know what the process is as soon as I do. Um, and I will go through the process as well. If I fail to qualify as an elder in this church, then so be it. But I will go through the process as well as whatever other men want to be elders. And that's separate from deacons. Um, but does that answer your elder question a little bit? It's not a fast process. It needs to be carefully done and um, according to high standards. Leah, you have another question. Here's Bob. Bob. <laughs> uh, my question pertains to eldership as well. Um, in this church, we follow eldership uh, in the sense that men are only called to be elders. But my question is, um, how then do women have a voice? Uh, That's annoying, eh? Can I just talk loudly? Can you yeah. hear me? Yep. Yep. So my question is, uh, if, if the elders are all male, some of them may have wives, right? But for example, I was a single mom for many years, and I, in my previous church experience, I didn't really feel I had a voice. I had to go through other men to have a voice, and when that failed, I was silenced. And so for me, now I am married, and Cameron can speak, I guess. But uh, the thing is, is that what about... I still think about people who are vulnerable, who aren't, do not have that privilege. And what concerns me is that a lot of times then, for example, the women or even men who've been abused by their men don't feel comfortable talking to a man. So they go to the wife of an elder, but that wife is not held to the same standard. So then there's potential for abuse there as well because, oh, I'm just, I, I'm not anyone special. I'm just 
I'm just the wife of this person. But they have authority and power in what they speak and do because their husband is an elder. And so there, a lot of the times there's like, they're not being held to that standard, which is dangerous. And so for me, that's basically something that I've really struggled with with the Lord is thinking, um, like I'm very confident in speaking for myself, but not every woman is. Mm -hmm. And not every vulnerable person is. Mm -hmm. right? so, so how do you how do you make sure that those people have a voice? Uh, because the only reason you should we have, like you just said, the structure of for power is to disseminate the power so people are protected, right? So people can fully have a relationship with Jesus and we can respond as a family. And so that's a little, like, I don't have an answer for that, so that's a hard question. Like, I don't know. Uh, but it's something I thought about because it happens all the time, right? I, I really appreciate that question. And that's very... Um Heavy on my heart. Heavy is the wrong word, but it's prominent in my thought because. So two things you brought up. One, you said wives aren't held to the same standards. Uh, they ought to be. There, along with the qualification for elders, there's qualification for wives of elders. They ought, ought not to be malicious gossips. They ought to be dignified, conducting themselves like basically the same thing. There cannot be a disconnect between, you know, the elder and his wife. So that would be my first hope would be that somebody can approach an elder's wife and she will discreetly or kindly or gently or whatever it is deal with it and, and deal appropriately with it. The other piece to that is that I think all of that stems from a wrong view of leadership, not your question, but that problem because we sometimes view the elders as um, the Supreme Court judge panel and it's like, how can I get my petition to them? How can I get my voice heard? But that's not the picture we have. I, I made a diagram and I forgot to put it up, but elders are part of the congregation. They are sheep, just like the sheep. But they are under shepherds, which means that they sympathize and which means that they are among the sheep. And in fact, they lead by example, not by... Uh, divine fiat or whatever the word is. They don't lead by decree. They lead by example. And so an elder doing their job should preclude a vulnerable person saying, I have no idea how to get my voice heard because elders are called to shepherd the flock, which means you, you think about and you care about each person, whether they are of sound mind or whether they are struggling and you come alongside them in their life. And that's why a multitude of elders is important because some of you are thinking like, well, Tim's really lousy at that. And I probably am. But it would also be really helpful if other people had that same responsibility so that we could, you know, as, as a group of elders say like, hey, like let's, we can catch each other's blind spots and, and work through that together. So I would hope that the actual outworking of eldership here doesn't look like, you know, the black robes and white powder wigs, but among the people, guiding, looking, watching out for, care, shepherding, basically, so. Falling through the cracks. Yeah, like, yeah. When they're the ones, the reason why we have that structure in the first place. Yeah, thanks for asking. Did everybody that. hear that comment? She's just saying, you know, the whole reason for the structure is to defend and bless the vulnerable, not, mm -hmm. not oppress them, right? Um, I mean, I think one thing that we need to do as a group is to understand bad leaders 
explicitly. You know, like, sit down and talk. This is what bad leaders are, and this is how they tend to operate, and this is the characteristics of them so that we are all holding each other accountable to that. There are certain patterns. There, there are leaders that really like being the Supreme Court. And, you know, like everybody in the church needs their permission to do something. And, you know, really, as far as I understand anyway, elders in the church are far more like the, the servants of the church that are underneath things. Like, okay, we have people who are in waste disposal here. Like, what would our world be like if they just didn't do the job? Like, it, it would become a terrible mess. There's people that need to do the things that no one else really wants to do in the church, and those people are called elders. Um, it, it, it's not an over thing. It's, it's kind of a uh, people in the bowels of the ship pumping out the, the bilge sort of function. So, yeah. You know, somebody needs to do that. Karen, you yeah, have her hand up. So, a couple of questions um, on what you just said. So, elders must be married? Yes, yes? Because when you just said that uh, the wife of an elder would be someone held to the same standard who would be able to um, help, you know, women that wanted to speak to her, you kind of are making me think, Marriage is a requirement. I don't think elders have to be married because it does not say they have to be married. Okay. So it says that be... they need to be the type of, uh, oh, it's, it's called a one woman man. That's what the Greek there is, which means that if a dude is a guy who like, if he's unmarried, if he's having a lot of flings, if he's sort of like knows his doctrine, but really loves the attention of women, not a good pick. So I, the scriptures does do not say he must have a wife. So. Okay. So single men can be elders, just not single women, right? Wives are a very good test. I think it's a lot harder to choose a single man as an elder than it is to choose a married man because wives are a fantastic test of quality of a person, of a man. Okay. I just know that because I'm married. And I'm, I, not, and I'm not disagreeing no, with no, what I know. I'm going to say next. I just want to make sure it's on the table and very clear that single women are not elders. Correct. Okay. Women, period. Yeah, married or unmarried. That, I believe, is a timeless scriptural principle. And it's not because women are less valuable. In fact, women are often... So this is, I think, to Leah's question, how do women's voices get heard? I hope that's not a question at Evergreen because I will sit and, and listen to the wisdom of anybody in this church. Man, woman, child, adult, senior. I don't see myself as submitting to somebody by sitting and listening to their perspective. And so women are part of the discerning process of moving forward as a church. They are part of the care process of, of living as a church family. Elders are not people who make, quote-unquote, female-less decisions. Like, oh, it's a good elder decision as long as no woman speaks into it. That's a bogus, unscriptural view of eldership. Elders are overseers. It does not mean that they are not uh, endowed with the perspective and the help and the suggestion and perspective of good, godly women. 
So I hope it's not a question of like, how do I get my voice heard? Because I, I, I want elders in this church to be open to sound wisdom of everybody. And I don't want women to feel like they do not have influence or, or whatever in the church because they are a woman. They just do not hold the office of an elder. Which standard? That they will listen and empathize with women when they, like, how are you going to... Okay, I... So Leah's question is, how are you going to hold a, a man to the standard of being that kind of person and open to reason? Well, it's scriptural that wisdom is open to reason. Wisdom is pure, peaceable, open to reason. And so if a woman is trying to deal with an elder and that elder is dismissive, or condescending, then I would hope that that woman's like, I'm going to talk to the eldership because they're not going to tolerate that. And you go to another elder and you say, this is what's happening with this dude. And then the eldership would say, that sounds disrespectful. And we're going to talk to him. And again, that would just be part of, that would be part of what I would hope to be the ethos and the standard of eldership here is that you, you don't, you don't get to be dismissive of anybody. Platitude, lip service, yeah. So I, I, I hope it brings you comfort that I can't answer that right now. Um, like, what is the standard? Like, how do we know? that? That's part of the development of eldership. That's part of, I think, our commitment is to not just fall into either church cultural norms or culture culture norms. We just got to say, hey, we're going to figure this stuff out. Oh, um, Thank you, Elijah. Appreciate that. Uh, Tim, just to add to that question. And we're, we are going to wrap up soon. I know this. Is, is uh, there any, um, and again, you probably can't answer this. Is there any possibility of something along the lines of elder couples? You know, where maybe an elder would say or would form the congregation, basically, I discuss everything with my wife. Everything you tell me is, is talked over with my wife. I... Yeah, or just that idea where you say, okay, listen, if you talk with my wife, then we will talk sort of thing, you know, where you, you really are kind of, um, you know, making it clear that you're a team together. 
After all, the unity, the unity of husband and wife underlies any other role that you might have. It's, it's the most basic truth about And maybe that's been very underemphasized in the complementarian view is that the man is the qualified elder and the woman is his partner, sidekick, whatever. And maybe that's just a very shallow understanding of marriage. Because again, marriage and family is the building block of church leadership. You don't get into church leadership if you, if your family is a, if you're a disaster leading your family. He says, if you can't manage your family, how can you manage the household of God? So if your, if your marriage works, like you think, I'm in charge because I'm the dude, and um, you know my wife will just do what I say. Uh, you're you're also going to fail in the church because that's not how a marriage works. Women are called to submit to their husbands, but we're also called to mutually submit one to another. So how does that work? I don't know. A bit of a mystery, but um, many of you probably already know that I, Shannon is my partner. She she like to to look at me as a leader is to look at my marriage with Shannon because I don't know what I'm doing without her help um, and her input and her perspective. So in some ways, I think in practice, I do that and maybe others would as well. But um, yeah, I can't separate my quote unquote church leadership from my marriage to Shannon. This process is ongoing. This is not the book closing on your chance to speak. Um, Again, please, um, please familiarize yourself with the application the documents you have in front of you pray about this because if you are listening to this if you go to this church god is i'm god is is pulling on you because that's the direction this church is going and so i i ask that you would pray about that and consider how god would have you respond and fill out an application if you're ready to do that call me if you want to talk more and have questions